Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Let's hear about this episode's topic. Hey, um, I grew up in a household where we never talked about relationships or sex. Now I have a teen boy and I want to have these conversations so he doesn't have to ask his friends or worse, go on the internet. But it can be awkward. Any tips on talking to teens about healthy relationships? So we are very excited to welcome Dr. Brandy Lyles today to join us on Kids Considered. Dr. Lyles is a licensed clinical psychologist who works here at the UC Davis Children's Hospital Care Center, and she has expertise in the area of childhood trauma. She specializes in clinical training services for youth involved in juvenile justice systems, child protective services, and youth who have experienced sexual exploitation. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to be here. Great. So today we're going to discuss the challenging topic of talking to teens about relationships and sex. Right. And we're so happy to have Dr. Lyles here with us because admittedly, this topic can make many of us feel uncomfortable. So as pediatricians, we know how important talking about sexual health is during the teen years. But it's something that all of us need a little bit of extra help learning how to do. Right. So let's start with discussing romantic relationships. And at what age do most kids start feeling romantically towards another individual? So this is a great question. The first thought that comes to my mind is to remember that we are born sexual and relational beings. So it doesn't just pop and happen when we become adolescents or young adults. Um, like all forms of development, we um, start in infancy, we, you know, gain knowledge through childhood, and then become adolescents and adults with more comprehensive thoughts and ideas about sex and romantic relationships. And all of the knowledge and experiences that we have are going to influence how we sort of manage this as we get older. Um, and so that's why I'm so happy that we're having this topic today, because I know that this can be such an awkward conversation for parents to have and just wondering about when to start it and what to say and, you know, how do you manage these things? I um, read an article I'm preparing for this, and it's actually one of my favorite articles. Um, it's by some colleagues um, in Canada, Heather Coleman and um, Grant Charles. And this article was written about two decades ago, but it's called Adolescent Sexuality, a Matter of Condom Sense. <laughs> catchy, catchy. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but this amazing quote stuck with me that they said that the fact of the matter is that young people do not wake up on their 13th birthday transformed into a sexual being overnight. <laughs> and so having these conversations early and often, you'll hear me say this sort of throughout, um, is really, really important. Yeah. So around what age would you say? Yeah, so around age 9 to 11 is when friendships start to get a little bit more complex. Kids start to grow stronger friendships with their peers. 
And then obviously when you're in that preteen adolescent stage, that's when the emotional, social, body, physiological <laughs> body changes um, come into play that influence our relationships as well. By the age of 13, about a third of adolescents are saying that they've had or are in a romantic relationship. And by 17, that increases to about 80 to 90 percent. So mm -hmm. by 17, most kids have had at least one um, romantic relationship. Hmm. Wow. I mean, that's kind of like on par with what I would expect, you know, working mm -hmm. with kids day in and day out. And and I mean, some of these kids, you know, say they have a boyfriend or girlfriend or, or in kindergarten, you know, so early. Mm -hmm. So just like you said, this is not something that they wake up when they're 13 and all of a sudden like, oh, bam, um, I'm thinking about this. This is this is, you know, developing over time. So how would you recommend a parent brings up a conversation um, about romantic relationships with their child. So what are the most important components to include in this conversation? Is it something that you should do, like sit down at dinner and say, we're going to have the birds and the bees talk? Or what? <laughs> <laughs> how would you Not do at this? dinner. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, <laughs> so, yes. Um, what I want parents to think about is you really want to start these conversations earlier than you might think that you need to start them or earlier than you may want to start them. Um, but and, and really, our idea about relationships comes from two things, these direct conversations that we're talking about, but also modeling. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. But let's start with conversations. And so, um, as you mentioned, I'm a child abuse expert. And so one of the very, very important topics that I talk with caregivers about is talking to their kids about consent. And I think this is really where some of the sex um, consent starts with as well. And so I would say young, very young, birth, one, two, um, um, by two to four, you know, kids can understand some of the mechanics of their bodies. Um, you know, we recommend using anatomically correct names for their penis and their vagina and reducing some of the shame related to um, sexual parts or private parts, as we um, say, for kids. And, and that helps reduce some of the secrecy and the shame, the guilt that can be linked with um, sex and sexual parts, which then are the building blocks for these later talks. And by the age of five, kids can start to understand some of this, and it's not harmful at all to be able to talk to them about this. Now, you may be leaving out some of the details, or you may not be talking about the dangers or the pleasures of sex, but they can understand some of the mechanics, and that's a great place to start. And then how does that shift as they get older and the conversation gets a little more comprehensive? Yes. So I want parents to really think about you want to have some of these deeper, more complex conversations before a child might be or a youth might be sexually active. And so really thinking around the ages of eight, nine, ten, you can give more details about sex, you know, more details about romantic attraction, talking to them about, you know, their own romantic attraction. 
Um, and then talking some about sexual decision making. How do you know when you're going to be ready? You know, what are some of the things to look for in relationships that are healthy? What are some of the red flags to look for in unhealthy relationships? And I think one of the most important things is to make sure that kids understand that they can come to their parents with questions. Anytime they're confused, anytime they're given information from other people, you want them to be able to come to you to have these conversations instead of peers or the internet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because we all know that you can find some wild things on the internet. So, <laughs> Yes, unfortunately, a kid Googles sex, just types in S-E-X, about four or five, you know, websites <laughs> down are going to be a porn site. And yeah. so, you know, we really want kids to be coming to us for healthy, effective information so that they're not having to um, manage their curiosity in these other sort of more dangerous or po- problematic ways. So I'm glad you mentioned that it's an ongoing conversation because it's not like you're going to have this talk once and then like, okay, got that, check that off my list. And, you know. Check that off my parenting list. <laughs> exactly. This is not a one and done. Um, you really want to build the blocks really early on so that that way when your youth becomes an adolescent, you've already you know probed them to have some of these conversations. So when they get into the more tricky, complicated things related to sex, and sex versus intimacy and, you know, how am I going to say no? How do I know when I want to say yes? All of those things, those conversations have happened throughout the years that gives them, you know, that that window of opportunity that they know that they can come to their parent to talk about these things. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, my understanding of relationships is still evolving. So I feel like <laughs> it we, always we is, always, right? Always. For all of us. Right. For all of us. We always have more to learn. How can parents be role models about positive relationships for our kids? And is there data to show that kids and teens replicate the relationships that they see in their home life? We know that the most important role model likely for children is going to be their their parents. Yes, and there is research to show that um, the kids replicate some relationships and relationship patterns that they see growing up um, from parents and other adults. And so, you know, the, the most important thing is to be good role models of healthy relationships for your kids. So providing, you know, protective, consistent environments, being free of coercive control, but also helping kids really with emotional regulation and how do you manage feelings and how do you talk about feelings when you might feel not just happy all the time, but when you feel mad or when you feel sad, how do I manage all of that? And and all of that is going to be how, how the pan- parents manage that are going to be role models um, for the children. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. How about um, you said you mentioned coercive control in there. Tell me what you mean a little bit more with that. Yeah, so we know that kids who grow up with exposure to, for example, intimate partner violence, where there's um, physical abuse or emotional abuse, may be directed towards them, but also directed towards one of their other parents or the people that they love, that this can um, be a negative effect on their future relationships, maybe as the aggressor of some of that violence, or maybe as a victim of some of that violence. And so, um, you know, kids can learn some of the destructive, destructive lessons about relationships from adults. But the opposite is also true, that they can learn healthy, effective lessons of how we treat people and how we be in relationships in healthy, effective ways from their parents as well. Right, right. And it's not to say 
that if you have been the victim of of intimate partner violence or something, that there aren't ways to buffer this in your kids. Is that right, Dr. Lyles? Absolutely. So getting safe is the most important thing. Um, and you getting safe is going to be able to help be a role model and sort of disconnect this trajectory that sometimes happens for your kids as well. And, you know, it's also not just on parents. We as society, we as professionals need to reduce the shame related to interpersonal violence um, and be able to, you know, accept victims and listen and believe them and help get them support as needed and knowing that it's not just this really simple solution to some of these complex relational problems. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I wonder if we can shift a little bit to talk about um, how to support teenagers during this time that might be questioning their sexual or gender identity um, and how to find relationships within that and, you know, bringing it up with parents. Um, I know this could probably be its own podcast um, just talking about this, but within the context of relationships. Yeah. So what a very, very important question, because I think that, you know, this can be very difficult for na- for parents to navigate as well, depending on their own thoughts and beliefs about sexuality and gender identity. But there's very, very clear data. Most, most of the data that I'm familiar with is coming out of the Family Acceptance Project out of San Francisco State University. And they just show how clear it is that when a parent is loving and accepting of their child and their LGBTQ IA plus status that that can really, you know, honestly saves lives and reduces suicidality um, in these teens. And so absolutely most important point is loving and accepting your, you know, gender diverse um, you know, sexual orientation of what your child is choosing. And if they're questioning, then really being open to those conversations as well and um, exploring some of their thoughts related to why they might be questioning some of these things and just providing them, you know, knowledge and support throughout this really, really important journey. And if a parent feels uncomfortable with that or they don't know how to manage this, I highly, highly recommend that they reach out for support, get their own knowledge, really process some of their own thoughts and emotions so that they can be there for their child. Now, with social media and constant access to internet and, and, and social media, I know many parents worry about their children having romantic relationships or inappropriate exchanges online or sexting. You know, how can parents talk to teens about this? And how can we monitor to make sure that this stays appropriate? Dr. Dean, this is probably the issue that comes up most often when I'm working with conflict within adolescent and parent relationships and how to manage these things. And there's just a disconnect because our generation and older generations just didn't grow up with this constant access. And so we don't have those same experiences of, you know, we can't give them lessons of, oh, how did we navigate, you know, social media as a young child or as a teenager? And so there is really this disconnect and and a lot of fear and anxiety related to, you know, social media. And then the constant access. So adolescents are having constant access to this, the, to the world in this digital way that just hasn't always been true. And so 
lots of complications here, lots of dynamics. But I do think that what we teach about real-life relationships or real-world relationships can also apply to online relationships. So thinking about those things about consent and healthy relationships and red flags, you know, all of those things can also be used to think about the internet and and relationships on the internet. You know, and teaching kids about having the benefits of this access, but also some of the dangers of that and that not everyone is who they say they are on the Internet. And how do you think about that? And how do you come with questions when you're confused about that? So I think all of that is a really, really helpful start. Um, Some of the other topics I like to talk with teens and parents about is having discussions about privacy. You know, where is this information going? This information may be accessible to people you don't want it to be accessible to. And so how do we have conversations around that? How do we build boundaries and rules around that? But also some of these thoughts about like online identity formation and, you know, how you portray yourself online and what does that mean and what might that, you know, attract or what might that, you know, lead you into. Um, And so and so talking about all of those things in really open, honest conversations, I think is really important. And then for parents to be open to learning as well, because their kid knows a lot more about this world than maybe they do. And so um, being able to sort of listen so you can help navigate this challenging world of of online and online relationships. I really like how you mentioned that last part because it, it's it's a two-way street. It's not just the parent telling the kid. It's not it's not a lecture. It's really a back and forth. And it's not like I could go up to a teenager and said, yeah, let me show you some of the pictures that when I was a teen that I put on Instagram or let me show you some of the tweets I did, you know, it, it, in my in my teens cuz like that just didn't happen. Yeah, and I I talked to them a lot about you know, posting. And I think that social media for teens can be very pro-social, can be a great way to get involved with advocacy or or get out and join other groups. So we talked about people who may be questioning their gender identity or gender fluid kids. I think it's a great forum for them. Um, but I do always say, you know, think about what you're posting on there because they and think about if you want your college admissions officer to be seeing it one day. Um, and we know that that's happening yeah, right now as well. Yes, big time. So to have those conversations and, and you know, a lot of parents um, – have ways of monitoring what their kids do online as well, which can be useful as long as it's not done in a secretive way. You know, we think back to like, my parents didn't come in my room and read my diary or else I I hope they didn't. Um, And so (laughs) Uh now with this, it's like, it's sort of like that, right? You have to think about it like that. So you may have some apps or a website that helps you monitor to ensure safety, but you don't want to be going in and, you know, reading all of your your kids, your teens' comments or other things like that. Yeah, and really the communication is important here, too, that the monitoring and supervision isn't just a punitive approach or it's not the secret spy work that they're going to be doing as a parent, but that the, you know, internet and social media is not private. And so because of that, you know, parents need to help their, their teens and, and their children sort of navigate this. There's a great book that I recommend called Parenting in a Digital World. It's by Clayton Cranford, and it just has some really helpful, practical, sort of step-by-step techniques that you can start really early on to help model some of this appropriate um, internet use. 
One of the things you mentioned about parents monitoring is I think we've all heard this, that you know, that that when kids find out that their parents are monitoring their accounts, then they create a shadow account. They create a separate account that is just for their friends that their parent doesn't know about. So it can really it, it can really backfire. <laughs> it really can backfire. Um, and this is where we get a lot of yes, but the fact is, is that your kid is always going to be more savvy <laughs> you than at, at creating ways to be able to get some privacy related to it. But if you're having these open, trusting relationships, that's going to really create, again, that window, that opportunity for that youth to come to ask about if something you know, weird is happening, or they're not sure how to navigate some of the things online. You want them to be able to come to their parent to talk about those things. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 